Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to finish this chapter up today. And we have had such a wonderful experience going through this chapter. And I think you're going to find the way that Paul sticks the dismount on what he's been talking about over the previous 29 verses is nothing short of amazing and remarkable. Romans chapter 9. Let me read the passage we'll be studying and put it in our minds. Romans 9 verse 30. Paul says, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Any cursory reading or an in-depth reading of the Bible quickly shows you that the Bible is a very Jewish book, is it not? From Genesis 12, where we meet Abraham, who was the first Jew. He was made Jewish, or made by, so by the circumcision in Genesis 15. But in Genesis 12, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation, it is thoroughly immersed in Judaism, in Jewish thinking. The Jews are God's chosen people. The Messiah and Savior of the world was prophesied to be a a Jew. The future kingdom of God is to rule, be ruled by the king of the Jews. And even our eternal state, heaven's capital city, is called the new what? Jerusalem, the state capital of the Jews. This accent, though, on Jews was never intended by God to be exclusively and partial to the Jews. It may sound a little odd, but even when he talked to, when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, listen to this very, very broad-based prophecy. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's beyond Jews. So the very first prophecy given to the very first Jew was that through the Jewish line, through Abraham's line, there would be a way to bless the entire world and that would ultimately be fulfilled because of the Jewish Messiah who brought salvation and forgiveness of sins to anyone and everyone who believes So, historically, when we, we find ourselves in the New Testament and the Jewish Messiah comes to the Jewish people and the Jews rejected him, at least as their Messiah, many believed, but as the king of the Jews, he was rejected. 
It's no surprise that there was a lot of confusion about God's relationship to the Jews and even more confusion about God's relationship to these new believing Gentiles. How does the gospel bring all of this together? In order to understand that, we have to take a trip back to the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Remember, in the early part of Acts, the gospel is preached. There were a few Gentiles who believed, but predominantly it was the Jews receiving their own Messiah, at least in individuals. They didn't receive him as a nation, but individuals were repenting in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 5. Uh, Acts 4, you see these, um, these sermons preached and this response. And it was largely the, a Jewish sect that had emerged called Christianity. But something happens dramatic in chapter 10 of Acts. And I want to take the time to tell you this story. Dr. Luke tells us this, Acts 10.1. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. He was a Roman. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. This was someone who must have been evangelized, if we can call it that, by a Jew to see that the God of Israel was the true and living God and he began to worship and fear this God. About the ninth hour of every day, he clearly saw in a vision, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa. And send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier, those who were his personal attendants. And after explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way, approaching the city... Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great screen, a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. This is a divine PowerPoint presentation. And there were in it, or on it, on this projection, all kinds of four-footed animals, animals and, and, and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, we find what kind of animals these were. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. He must have thought it was a test. For I have never eaten anything, here it is, unholy and unclean. So here's what's happening. Peter falls into a trance. He was hungry. And this sheet, this divine projection is lowered down. And in this trance, he sees these animals that were all classified as unclean according to Leviticus chapter 11. 
And God says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter objects. He says, hang on. My whole life, I've obeyed the dietary commands of the Old Testament, which tell me that this is out of bounds. I love verse 16. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up to the sky. Why three times? Have you read about Peter? Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, don't you love the divine timing, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared by the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without any misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. Something sweet about that one. I've always hoped that someone would knock on my door and say, we were just hoping you would come to our house and preach to us. It's never happened, but it happens to Peter. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. They spend the night. So on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This is quite a worship service they're about to have. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and, and worshiped. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled there. And, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now, Peter interprets the vision. It wasn't just about being able to have bacon and Pulled pork. It's good to have Acts 10 in the Bible when you live in Kansas City. <laughs> this was just a metaphor about unholy and unclean people, the Gentiles. Verse 29, that is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So, verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Now he almost exposits and explains and interprets that vision of the sheet and the unclean animals. But in every nation, 
every nation. The man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. He's talking about the life of Christ. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been anointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Notice it's not just Jews, anyone living and anyone dead. He is the ultimate and final judge. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. All those who were listening to the message, all the, uns, all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those or these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. This is a significant moment in the history of redemption. God has, through Peter, through this vision, through this illustration, said to the original evangelists, the gospel is not merely for the Jews. That's an echo of the Abrahamic covenant. I want this to be something that blesses the whole world. That's what the gospel intended by God to be. Well, it got a little sticky over the next few chapters. Turn over to Acts 15. And it came to a head because some of the Jews who were now believers began to have a little spiritual heartburn over the Gentiles who were believers. It was almost like they were saying, this is our Jewish Messiah. What are you doing joining our club? So they had a big council, a big meeting at Jerusalem. Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were confusing the New Testament gospel of belief and faith and grace with the Old Testament ritual. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. How does God save? By grace through faith or through circumcision? Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, 
It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Remember, Peter is the one who had this vision. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth, by the mouth of the Gentiles, that by mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He recognized the Old Testament prophecies to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by what? By faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We weren't able to obey all the law. Why are you telling them to? And then verse 11. This is remarkable. This is incredible. In verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. You would expect him to say, they're saved like us. Peter says, we're saved like them. How? By grace, through believing, through faith. All the people kept silent and they were listening to the Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. James comes up and begins to talk about this. He actually goes back to Isaiah and says in, in verse um, 17, all the Gentiles will be called by his name. It's Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. So what is this about? This idea of God sending his grace through the Jewish people, primarily through Abraham, and his descendants having a king who would one day be on the throne of David, who would rule the world, was not intended to be just a Jewish way of salvation. That was something that was struggled with in the early church. It was something the people in Rome, the Italians to whom Paul was writing, were still struggling with. Frankly, it's something that people still struggle with today. So here at the end of Romans 9, Paul provides a summary of the theological and practical realities of salvation. And his focus is to understand how and why the Jews rejected the gospel of God concerning Jesus and the Gentiles ended up receiving it. Remember what John says in John chapter 1 verse 11? Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. What we have here at the end of Romans 9 is, I think, an explanation, an exposition of what that means. How could the Jews, who were promised this Messiah, when God finally sends him, end up rejecting him as the king, at least as a people? Some Jews believed, but as a people, they rejected him as the king. And the Gentiles were so willing and open to believe and to obey him. Why was that? What's going on there? That's the question Paul answers, but not without some um, uh, introduction. And what I mean by that is, in the first 29 verses of Romans 9, he's talked about this idea of remnant theology, that 
Though there was a lot of Jews, they weren't all saved. Though there were a lot of people, not all are all saved. There's, God is faithful to save a remnant, but he doesn't save everyone. There's, there's, there's no universalism taught in the Bible. Back to Romans 9. In fact, Romans 9, more than any other, any other chapter in the Bible, describes the plight of man being in such a sinful state that if God doesn't choose some, if God doesn't elect some, if God doesn't predestine some, no one would believe and no one would be saved. And he, he just expounds that over and over from so many different angles, telling, telling the, the readers, God chose to work through Jews, but not all who are in Israel are Israel. Not everyone who says they're a Jew is saved, even though they had all the blessings. God chose some and not others. And this is such a, a difficult theological truth to, to grasp. That he chose some and not all. Actually, he chose some and not others. And he goes on, he, he says it several different ways. And every time he says it, he says it stronger. He gives the illustration of the, the two sets of brothers. And God chose the second born over the first born. Counterintuitive to the way the normal order of the progenitor would work. And then he says, just when you think, I don't know if that's fair, he says, who are you to judge God? And this, when you think, is that really what he's saying? He says, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Who can resist his will? Which leads to the question, then how is, how is anyone saved? What do we say to this? In order to pull this to a summary, I want to follow Paul's lead, and we're going to find in this passage three crucial concepts for understanding God's plan for salvation, not our, God's plan for salvation. This is really simple once we have the background. Three crucial concepts for understanding God's plan for salvation. That's what Paul is intending for these readers to understand, and I think it's what we should be taking away as well. The first is this, number one, the reward of faith. The reward of faith. What shall we say then? Now he's just said, he just quoted uh, uh, Hosea that God will call the people who are not his people, his people, that, that is the Gentiles. And in doing that, it raises the question of, well, what is God doing? Who, who is God saving? What about the, the Jewish Messiah? Why is he doing this? What do we say to this? Then he gets some explanation that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. What, what is going on here? Well, the Gentiles of Paul's day were no different than the, the Gentiles or the pagans, as we would think about the unbelievers of ours. These were, uh, in a Greco-Roman society, incredibly immoral. Um, stealing, regular. Uh, you would actually worship the local God by going in and committing immoral sexual acts with, with the priestess in the temple. Um, death was, was at the discretion of a slave owner and only uh, 2% of the people in this land were, were, uh, uh, were not slaves. So you were in trouble. This was a very wicked, immoral situation. And yet, Paul says... These Gentiles, and I love this little footnote, footnote, who were not pursuing righteousness. Now we come back to our word righteousness we've seen over and over since the early part of Romans. Righteousness, the word means perfection or justification. There's synonyms from this Greek word. 
perfection, justified, or righteous. And what it means is to have a right standing with God. Remember the theology. Being forgiven of sins is not enough to make it to heaven. Because that, that takes us from an issue of being in debt to God to being at zero. We don't owe God anymore. The debt is paid. What is required is being righteous before God. We sang it earlier. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We, only, we not only need our sin erased from our account, we need perfection or righteousness put into our account. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, we sang it just earlier. God made Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the what? The righteousness of God, how? In him. Remember the doctrine we, we looked at over and over of imputation? It's a financial term. That on our ledger, God places, he imputes the perfection of Jesus on our ledger and takes our sin away and puts it on the cross. It's an incredible, incredible reality. Paul says the Gentiles who weren't pursuing perfection, they weren't pursuing righteousness, they weren't even trying. They were just wicked sinners following wicked ways. They attained, think of it in these terms, perfection. They became perfect in the eyes of God. They became righteous in the eyes of God. They became justified in the eyes of God. Now, if you're a Jew hearing this, your blood pressure is rising. Gentiles being righteous and perfect before God when they weren't seeking it, how did that happen? And Paul tells us, which is a summary of the first five chapters, even the perfection or righteousness which is gained or attained how? By faith. By faith. He's identifying the question or problem that he knows his readers have based on what he's just said in verses 24 and following. How could the Gentiles be included in the covenant of God made to the Jews? And here's the key point. These saved Gentiles did not come to be so by the typical wrong-headed Jewish misconception of pursuing their own righteousness. They were made righteous by believing something, by, by faith. You remember Romans 1.17, after the speaking of the gospel in 1.16. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it goes all the way back to, to the Old Testament. But the righteous man shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. And then in Romans 3, you know this very well. Verse 21, apart from the law... This was a shocking statement to a Jewish mind. Apart from the law, different... Outside the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, it wasn't obeying the law that made you righteous. It was a believing in the Messiah that the law prophesied. And then it summarized one of the most important verses in the whole Bible in Romans 3.28. For we maintain that man is justified, made righteous, made perfect in God's eyes by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, if we're seen as righteous and perfect in God's eyes, why do we not act righteous and perfect? Remember in Romans 6 and 7 where he explained, because we're still in human flesh. We still have human desires. We still have fleshly desires, and we'll fight those until we're released by death from this flesh. But still, God sees the one who believes 
as righteous, as perfect, as justified in his eyes. The reward of faith then is salvation. It is not the reward of the self-righteous. It is not the reward of amplified effort. We'll get here, but look down in chapter 10, verse 20. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. God, in his elective, predestinative purposes, incredibly reveals the gospel to Gentiles who didn't have the advantage of the Jews. That's me. That's most of you. That's incredible. But this is given in distinction to this second crucial concept for understanding God's plan for salvation. Number one, the reward of faith. Number two, the ineptitude, inability of works. This is review. He said this over and over for for eight chapters. But Israel, now remember the, the distinction. The Gentiles are saved by faith because of God's grace. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They were pursuing a law of righteousness. In other words, if I can obey the law enough, I'll be righteous. And by that effort, it was inept. They didn't make it. They did not arrive at that law. They couldn't obey enough. Now, Paul's going to explain this further in verse 2. This section actually extends through the first four verses of Romans 10, but we're going to come back to those first four verses in our next study. But look at verse 2. Well, look at verse 1. Brethren, it's my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. It's for their salvation. That's his Jewish brethren. I find that interesting after talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation for a whole chapter, that he still prays that they would believe. He wasn't some hyper-Calvinist or Calvinazi. He still prayed for people to believe For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. This is the Jews. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. What are they trying to do? For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. There it is. Not knowing about God's righteousness in Christ, but seeking to gain it and attain it and earn it by their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to Everyone who believes. It's not works. I love the way that Thomas Schreiner says this. The Jews who heard the gospel and rejected it focused on, listen to this, achieving instead of believing. They were trying to achieve rather than believe. They thought if we can do enough, God will be happy with us. And you know what, folks? That's just the same with us today. This is not a Jewish problem alone. We all think, well, I'm not as bad as another person. We think God grades on a curve. Well, since I'm not as bad as some, those are obviously hell-bound and hellions. Since I'm better than them, I'm I'm probably going to make the cut. God's going to make a final cut at the end, and I'll probably be better than I am worse. That's ingrained in all of our hearts. Paul says, no, there's no There is no such thing. There is nothing. No effort. No amount. No enough that God will finally say approved. That was the great fault of the Jews. And and look at, 
Verse 3 of chapter 10 says, excuse me, verse 2 says that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. It's not that they're, 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 they don't have a zeal. It's not that they're trying. There's a great effort there, but it's not in accordance to the knowledge of God that's revealed in the gospel. But that's not enough. Paul puts the exclamation point on this argument with number three, this third crucial concept for understanding God's plan of salvation. It's exactly what you would anticipate, the focus of Christ. The focus of Christ. Again, Israel pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. No one was ever righteous enough. Why? And now we find out what their problem was. Was it, was it bad to obey the law? Not bad at all. We're, the whole Old Testament says, here's the law, obey it. It wasn't a bait and switch that if they tried, then they were trapped. No, it was how they tried. Look at what he says. Why? Why did it not work? Why did their system of self-righteous acts not work? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They were trying to pursue it by enough They would want to do enough. They didn't pursue it by faith. Paul intertwines now two passages from Isaiah to describe the situation. Isaiah 8, 14 and Isaiah 8, 28, verse 16. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion... Stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's work a little backwards in this text. This stone of stumbling, this rock of offense is called a he, him at the end of verse 33. We're talking about a person. This is obviously talking about Jesus, which is, which is a, who is referenced in chapter 10, verse 4, the same context. He is the cornerstone. He's also the stumbling stone and the stumbling rock. Now, when you look at ancient Near Eastern um, studies of this word for stumbling stone, it's a really interesting study. They, these stones were, were, were rocks that they would get out of the way, typically for a race. They would get out of a road, but it was used specifically as a race. If you were going to race, they would get it out of the way so you could focus on winning the race. They had Olympics and local races, just like we have track meets as well. He says, but some people stumble over the stone. The, the, the rocks that were there were called stumbling stones. You want to get those out of the way so you can go to where you want to go. Paul reverses the analogy. He says, you know what? Everyone is racing toward what they want. We're, we're actually on a race toward our own pursuits. We're on a race toward hell. And God puts a stumbling stone in our way. You know what the stumbling stone is? It's Christ. So that every man is to crash against the rock and build his life on that rock or be crushed by it, stumble over it. Those who place their trust in Christ are those who stumble over the stone and then make it, as Peter says, Peter uses the same, same passage in 1 Peter 2, make it their cornerstone. They build their life on it. And that it is a hymn. Still an issue today. People continue to dismiss the righteousness of God as presented in the gospel because they can't earn it. 
Basically, I think because it's out of their control, they have to humble themselves and say, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not right enough. I'm not righteous enough. This is defined by God. Robert Mounts, so insightful. He says this, quote, they stumble over it because it deprives them of any proprietary involvement in their own salvation. It is pride that brings people down. How deeply ingrained is our rebellious self-esteem? Too proud to accept God's willingness to forgive, sinners stumble headlong into eternity with their stubborn sinfulness intact, end quote. He's right. He's right. We are to be humbled. We're racing toward our own end, and it's a bad end. And Jesus is the stumbling stone. We stop. We're tripped up by him. Now, here's what's amazing to me. The accent here is on faith, right? The Gentiles believed by faith. The Jews didn't believe because they didn't have faith to believe. Look even down at... Verse 4 of chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who does what? Who believes. Isn't it interesting? It's amazing to me that after a whole chapter describing and depicting God's sovereignty in salvation, the conclusion is believe. It's faith. He doesn't say in, in verse 4, which is really the, the, the kind of the conclusion to chapter 9, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who is chosen, elect, predestined. He says believes. Paul himself says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, and if you've been listening, and I know you have, you'll say, how can the same God who all throughout chapter 9 says, the potter has the right over the clay. God has mercy on the one he has mercy and not on the one who he doesn't. He's in charge. He actually hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Jacob I've loved. Esau I've hated. And yet he concludes by saying, Salvation is gained by faith. And if that sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, you're right. And so did Paul. And he doesn't make these two doctrines of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, he doesn't make them make sense. He keeps them in tension. And he believes them both. I find it incredible that even verse 32, look at, look at the implication here. They did not pursue it by faith. That's why they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What's the solution? What's the admonition? What's the response to the fact that God chooses in salvation? It's to have faith. It's to believe now, we know that no one will believe who's not chosen. But our admonition, even Paul says, I pray for them. He doesn't say, I pray for those chosen. I pray for them, that they would believe. And that's where we should end as well.
This all climaxes, though, in, in this last statement. He who believes in him, there it is. The gospel is to believe in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He who believes in him will not be, your text may say disappointed, which is a wonderful translation of this, this Greek word from the Hebrew. It literally means will not be made an open sham, will not be made shameful, will not be made a shame, put to shame. 1 Corinthians 1 says that we believe in a gospel that is ridiculous. Our hope is in, this is Paul's words, it's, he calls it the foolishness of God. We believe in the foolishness, tongue in cheek, that God would save sinners through the death of his son as a crucified Messiah and rise from the dead. And those who believe that may be put to a temporary shame in this world, but ultimately they will not be disappointed. They won't be put to an open shame. You can have assurance because of who he is. You know, in, in the last few months going over <clears throat> Romans 9, I, I, I confess that there were, I was conflicted. There were mornings that I came very early and sat in my office and just prayed, God, how do I say this? What Paul said, I choose some and not others. One I hated, one I loved. I'm the potter. The clay can't answer or question the, 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 um, the, the clay can't question the potter at all. I just kept wrestling with, how does this resolve itself? And all you have to do is read the, the end of the chapter. And Paul doesn't resolve it. There's a difference between resolving and giving us a response. His response is God's sovereign in salvation and we are to believe and call others to believe and that's the end there is no there is no answer that brings those into focus in the view that we can somehow wrap our minds around that those two doctrines don't fit on our shelves in our mind our, our minds our human minds are too small for those to coalesce but they coalesce in God's so what's the response to God's sovereignty and salvation, to God's opening up salvation and electing Gentiles over Jews? What's our, our response is this, have faith, believe. Believe in him who will not disappoint because Christ is the end of the law, goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law in verse four to everyone who, here's the word, believes. I think sometimes I make this doctrine more complicated than it really is. It's pretty simple. God's absolutely sovereign and he calls us to believe. There's really no more to say than that and that's exactly how Paul puts the exclamation point on this entire chapter. Now if you're smart, and you are, you're still thinking, but what about all his promises to all those Jews? Can you sneak into chapter 11 for just a second? I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never 
B, there is a future for Israel as a nation with the king of the Jews on the throne and a redeemed Jewish nation worshiping him with the Gentiles. But that's for chapter 11. This morning, let's just make sure that we have faith to believe. You see how this makes sense? And it doesn't at the same time? God's sovereign, so believe. That's how Paul ends it, and that's where we should leave it. Let's pray. Just amazed. Father, I'm so amazed every time I study your word. The clarity, the awesome confluence of two things that seem contradictory, and yet in your mind they don't. We affirm with what Moses said that the secret things belong to you, but you've revealed the things that you want us to know. So we affirm, we believe that you are sovereign over your world, sovereign over every man and woman, sovereign over salvation, and that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and no one would believe except you draw. And we also understand our responsibility to have faith and to believe. Thank you for not not fitting into our minds. Humble us to see that your ways are not our ways, that you are higher than us.